Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, my name is Dr Fiona McLean, and I'm really excited to be hosting this Dementia Researcher episode on vascular brain health. I am particularly happy to be hosting this episode as I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Dundee, where I investigate how metabolic diseases like obesity and type 2 diabetes can lead to diminished brain function, with a specific focus on the blood-brain barrier. Today, I am delighted to be joined by three other researchers in the field of vascular brain health, Dr Gaia Brezzo from the University of Edinburgh, Dr Sophie Quick, who is also from the University of Edinburgh, and Dr Josie Fullerton from the University of Glasgow. So now I have done a quick introduction, let's find out a little bit more about each of our researchers. So Gaia, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, thanks Fiona. Um, So yeah, I'm Gaia and I currently work at the Dementia Institute here in Edinburgh. I'm in Barry McCall's group and I'm particularly interested in the immune response following stroke and how this affects extracellular matrix, but also the immune system. So I will particularly be looking at what happens to monocyte-derived macrophages following stroke and how and when they infiltrate the brain and what happens to them in terms of do they become more microglial phenotype, do they leave after the stroke infarct is resolved. Um, And also, interestingly, we want to look at how we can manipulate this response to improve cognitive outcome and prevent dementia. Amazing. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's find out about our next researcher, um, Sophie. Hi, I'm Sophie. Um, I Last year I finished my PhD um, with Professor Anna Williams um, and now I'm doing a postdoc with her following that um, for the last year. Um, I'm interested in something called cerebral small vessel disease, um, which is actually the leading cause of vascular dementia. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the endothelial cells. So these are the cells that line the walls of the blood vessels in the brain, in all vessels, but I'm particularly interested in the ones in the brain and how these cells um, interact with other brain cells and how that might lead uh, to what we see in dementia. Amazing. I'm also a big fan of endothelial cells. <laughs> Maybe a bit sad, but I love them. Um, and last but not least, uh, Josie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so I am Dr Josie Fullerton. Um, I work at the University of Glasgow and in, in the last two days, I'm going to be finishing up my project with Dr Lorraine Work. Um, we focus on extracellular vesicles and microRNAs and their role in stroke. So basically we're looking at these tiny little vesicles that transmit uh, messages to and from um, cells and we're looking at how these messages change after stroke in human, in vivo and also in in vitro, so in cell models as well. Um, And then from Friday I'll be concentrating a little bit more on hypertension um, and how that can affect extracellular vesicle messages and then how we could use that to treat um, extracellular vesicles, how to treat hypertension. And that's with Stuart Nicklin at the University of Glasgow. That sounds good. So you're sort of you're almost broadening your sort of vascular interest, um, and yeah, that's yes, that's really. I'm trying good. to learn a little bit more about vessels. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Lots more vessels. Well, that's um, helpful because we're kind of going to be talking about that today. Um, so now that we know everybody um, and we know what everybody researches, let's uh, let's start discussing uh, a little bit more in depth about uh, vascular brain health. So I think a good place to start is talking about what vascular brain health is. If you talk to the public about good vascular health, they tend to automatically think of the heart. So what do we mean when we talk about vascular brain health and why is it important? Um, who would like to go first on this one? So Sophie, you look like you. <laughs> you uh... Well, um, I, I mean, I often think that um, people forget that the brain is highly vascularized. I think that sometimes when you talk generally about, um, you know, keeping... Uh, the the body healthy and keeping the blood flowing and exercise and all of these things we think about the benefits for the muscles we think about the benefits for you know other parts of our body but I think people forget that the brain is is full of this like incredible network of vessels and you know the energy demands that the brain has is the highest organ in the body um, I think, <laughs> I think I'm right in saying that. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what the percentage is, but, um, I think, I think in oxygen it's, I mean, I think it uses around about 10% of all, all, it's, all the oxygen. I mean, it's so um, demanding. I can't remember, the, the other, yeah, the other stat I have in my head is that the total length of capillaries in the human brain is about like 400 miles or something. Mm-hmm. Um, although maybe, <laughs> I think I think that that wasn't a paper. It was an official paper. <laughs> um, we but worked it, out it's too, too long to run. Too we're long. to find a, a good brain health to do a fundraiser for. I, it yeah. turns out you can't run the length of the vessels. Wow. <laughs> I know, that's very, very true. And, you know, within those 400 miles, like, I mean, all that all the main thing that's happening there is oxygen and nutrient exchange so yeah yeah absolutely um Gaia what what do you think yeah just to add from what Sophie said I think you could probably think about your brain as a very specialized muscle so like the heart and obviously it contains vessels as well as other cells so they do a really good job to keep you healthy so as Sophie touched on you know if you're exercising it's as good for your brain as it is for your heart and again, just to reemphasize what Sophie said, the body is all connected. So of course, what happens below the neck is a reflection of what is happening above the neck and also vice versa. So I'd say it's extremely important to keep the whole system healthy and happy, really. Absolutely. And Josie, do you have any um, take on that, especially now that you'll be looking more broadly at the sort of vessels in your new postdoc? Yeah, so I, I do think one of the things we when we're talking to the public, um, I think if we say vascular brain health, they would just focus on the brain health side of things, as in maybe focus a bit more about the mental health and and well-being aspect. Um, So when we then add in vascular brain health, I do think it can be quite confusing in the sense that we are still talking about mental health, but also your physical health. Um, And like you say, Gaia, it is like a muscle and it has to be exercised. but I don't think people maybe put the vascular and brain health together on a day-to-day basis. Um, I absolutely love that point that you've just made. I think you're completely right in terms of what we talk about as health. I think it's the only organ where we talk about a physical health and a psychological health. I, I mean, you don't think of you the rest of your organs, you only think about physical health. And I guess that's maybe where it becomes quite complex but in some ways, the two are very interconnected because if you don't have good physical brain health, that can impact on, you know, 
the psychological side in terms of cognition, memory, um, mood. So yeah, that's a really good point I never thought about before where the public maybe need a bit more um, information on how these are actually two separate things in terms of what we're talking as health, mental health and physical health, but actually they're interconnected at the same time. Totally. And I just just think it's so important to th- when you're thinking about the and things that you can do to improve your health and your mental health, it, it does relate all back to vascular health, um, especially in the brain. Yeah, the vessels in your body are everywhere, and I guess that's when we're talking about vasculature in the in the body. We need to remember that and remember that they're all connected. It's kind of in a way, apart from your nervous system, how your organs are connected to each other is that through through the vessels it's really cool so i think one of the things i find most interesting about the brain vasculature is you know despite the fact that we do have vessels everywhere um the vasculature in the brain is actually very different to the rest of the bodies um in that it has something called the blood brain barrier um so does anyone want to just give a quick rundown of what the blood brain barrier is and what is it about it that makes it unique? So who? Sophie, again, you're nodding. <laughs> Gonna pick on you. <laughs> I guess everyone's just much uh, just had the look that I'm eager to say something. Um, always. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I when I first started my PhD, um, I had not done a huge amount even of neuroscience before. Um, And I particularly hadn't really thought much about the vessels of the brain. So starting the PhD itself, you know, five years ago or whatever it is now, um, I was really fascinated to learn about the blood-brain barrier, which is maybe something that I hadn't really given much thought to. Um, And I mentioned um, that I study the endothelial cells. And so I think they're really special. (laughs) Um, I think they're really special, especially in the the brain. They have the vessels that are formed of these... um, these endothelial cells and they have these specialized functions so you'll find endothelial cells all over the body but in the brain they have these really special functions um, which means that they can form a kind of tighter seal so they can you know they have different things on their surfaces which means that they'll lock together a little bit better that sort of thing so that you know that's a very sort of first level thought of um, the blood-brain barrier in terms of the endothelial cells and then there's different cells that sit on the surface and then they can interact with other brain cells um, you know, f- so you can get this kind of a little bit of a conversation between the rest of the body and the brain. But generally, the blood-brain barrier provides kind of a seal, I sometimes think of it as, you know. You have this network of blood vessels throughout, um, but, you know, you want to protect the this very specialised organ, no matter how demanding it is. You want to protect it from, um, you know, things that get carried in the blood because I suppose it's, you know it's the best way to protect that brain health (laughs) yeah from things like you know viruses obviously when we're thinking about the world right now covid um is very prevalent so yeah that blood brain barrier is so important for from protecting the brain from viruses as well as other toxins i think um i think your idea about the seal is right i always think about endothelial cells like um a bouncer on the door of a nightclub and they kind of decide what gets in <laughs> not today if you're <laughs> not today <laughs> they decide what gets in but they also chuck any rubbish out as well um, 
And I, I was like, I think maybe maybe I've got this nightclub analogy in my head about cells <laughs> cells in the brain because I always think of the microglia as uh, they're the ones who would clear up. They would uh, carry your shoes home after a night out. <laughs> I have often thought about no, I've often thought about the characters um, given those little characteristics to different cell types. You know, I think of the yeah, I, I think of endothelial cells as quite you know steady. They just kind of get the job done. But if something goes wrong with them, you're really going to know about it. I think. That's so good. So yes, yeah, so what what were we talking about? The blood brain barrier, um, and why it's important. So and why it's unique. So uh, Gaia, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think just to add on what Sophie said again, because she described it beautifully. Um, I'd say yeah, it's super selective. But I think what's really exciting about blood brain barrier research, just in general, is that we're still discovering more and more about it. We know that it's an incredible structure, as we said, keeps bad things out puts bad things out, but we still don't really, you know, fully understand even in disease, if it's damaged, if it's weakened, what really happens mechanistically, or even, you know, other cells that maybe you might not think directly interact like microglia, there's more and more evidence to show that they do. Um, so I think it's just a really exciting field of research that will hopefully lead to, you know, new discovery in terms of how we can use the blood and barrier to really improve people's lives in terms of you know recovering from dementia or even preventing dementia entirely absolutely yeah I mean the one thing that we do know is that the blood-brain barrier goes wrong in dementia related diseases and it happens pretty early on um, in terms of that sort of progression so finding out more about how it works and why it goes wrong when it goes wrong uh, is so important Um, I think the other like the thing that always strikes me though is why you know why are we not why does the blood brain barrier equivalent not exist so much in other organs like that i think that just shows how controlled the brain really is i think the only other one i can think of is um the placenta i think that's if you look at which is quite you know maybe something you wouldn't associate but the placenta also has this really unique barrier and i guess when you think about it if it's trying to protect a baby you know that's that's something really precious in your body as well so um but yeah Josie what would you think on this special yeah barrier. so i think sophie's uh sophie you summarized that beautifully in my notes i wrote won't let things cross so you've done much better <laughs> um so one of the things that i'm just going to do a bit of our research plugging is we're looking at extracellular vesicles because they do cross the blood-brain barrier um so we're looking at them as a method of treating things like stroke um or alzheimer's disease or and or um or TBI, you know, we're looking at how we could administer them actually intranasally, um, or as my boyfriend puts it, you're giving rats nose sprays, um, <laughs> which isn't what we're doing. Um, but yeah, I, what I'm really interested in about the blood-brain barrier is how selective it is and what it does let across, and when it does go wrong, when it is leaky, um, it will let things through that's obviously disrupting um, the brain's happiness. Um, but yeah, I think it's also important to think about what we are what our blood-brain barrier lets through in normal conditions. Um, so, yeah, just to add on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, yeah I absolutely. Gonna, I was just going to add, Sorry, sorry I, I also think that we have a tendency to think of the blood-brain, uh, any vessels, as kind of tubes. And I think what you were also saying, Josie and, and Gaia as well, that, you know, the, the vessel is more than just a carrier of blood. Um, you know, it, it in itself is quite dynamic and in itself can go wrong. And, you know, the cells and things can, they also have an effect, which I think, like you say, Gaia, is a really sort of exciting area 
in the past, I think we used to just think, oh, it's just it's just carrying the blood and gets a hole in it and it goes everywhere. Um, but it's so much more than that. Like the cells themselves really have their own, I guess, personalities, like we were saying. But, um, you know, they really have a role themselves, which is really cool. The other thing that going on from what you just said, Sophie, is that they used to think that the brain wasn't important and that the heart was the centre of, of the being. Um, and that I think it was, uh, was it, oh, Descartes? It was a philosopher anyway. He thought that the that the brain was just a, a valve, a heat valve for the heart. Um and, you know, realistically it's the brain is the important thing. And I think yeah, it's just amazing to think of how things have changed across across history and, and uh philosophy. Absolutely. I think also there's definitely this shift as I think everyone sort of said, away from um sort of just thinking of these vessels as tubes and also actually they're really important brain cells and I think one of the things that highlights that to me the most is it's something like every nearly every neuron in the brain has its own capillary and that shows you know it's even the neurons themselves might you know they can't function by themselves I think historically through neuroscience we've put a lot of emphasis on learning about neurons and kind of everything else has just been to the side and now um, I feel like we're in a real sort of interesting time where other cell types are now coming to the forefront of research, your microglia, astrocytes, um, endothelial cells. And we're starting to understand that really there's a whole um, heterogeneous population of cells out there that work together to make the brain work. They can't work independently. And I think that's what makes sort of neuroscience really exciting at the moment. Um, so yeah, we've been, been discussing a lot about how important um, our brain blood vessels are. Um, but what types of problems and illnesses can arise from having poor vascular brain health? Because some people aren't always aware that actually these diseases can be a result of the vessels in the brain. So what? let's discuss some, some of that. I, c I can kick off maybe this time. Save Sophie. Sophie's trying <laughs> away from me. <laughs> Not me again. Um, yeah, I'd say... I was thinking about this and I was like, there's not really one way to put it. So I think if you're talking about damage to the vascular system, I think it's multifaceted in general. And then depending on what disease you're talking about also changes. So talking about my own research, so something like a stroke can cause quite a quick change to the blood brain barrier. So, you know, of course there's a clot that could occlude the vessel and this could either lead to ischemia or if it ruptures it causes a hemorrhage, or it could be something that I guess it's more eerie because it's more slow building like cerebral amyloid angiopathy so you don't really know what's happening but when it does obviously increases your predisposition for stroke so i'd say it's very different depending on what condition you're studying and also within your condition so again going back to stroke for me even though there's this really big insult at the start following the resolution of this we see a lot of angiogenesis so you know new blood blue oh i'll start again is that we see angiogenesis following the stroke resolution. So we see a lot of vessel changes. There's new vessels that sprout, um, trying to basically make up for the fact that, you know, that area has been deprived of oxygen, but also these vessels look quite different. So there's still a lot of changes within stroke progression, but also on resolution that we still don't really understand. Um, sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but no, no. <laughs> basically the... diseases look different. <laughs> diseases do look different. I actually think, no. you know, one yeah. of the misconceptions about brain health in general, um, when you think about sort of dementia related diseases and illnesses is that 
everything fits into a category but actually most patients have a crossover or or have multiple conditions or illnesses Um, and that's something that makes it really complex and trying to unravel what's connected what's independent is is obviously very difficult um but yeah let's talk more like sophie what's your kind of area of um of research in terms of the brain and problems that can arise yeah well i guess in contrast to what the guy was saying about something like stroke being um you know a very uh of the moment kind of injury to the brain that's then going to cause a um a long-term effect in in terms of dementia um, I during my PhD and now postdoc, I have been looking at cerebral small vessel disease, uh, and uh, well, we understand what we see in the vessels. You know, they have this very like characteristic um, changes, and then you see on MRI scans, you can see and um, like these sort of hyper intensities that can, which is just sort of like spots on the MRI, um, and so we kind of understand that what goes wrong in the vessels, and we kind of understand what goes wrong in the other cells of the brain so like your neurons and the cells that wrap around the neurons the oligodendrocytes um so we kind of see understand what's going on with them but not really um understand what how they're two are linked um and so i think yeah cerebral small vessel disease i'd never heard of it before i started studying it really um it was just a project that i loved um, working with anna williams and um the the topic was so interesting um, and yeah, it's just kind of like a slow burn rather than a, a specific thing. Um, and exactly what you were saying as well, um, Fiona, about this overlap of different um, features, like cerebral small vessel disease is really hard to diagnose. You can tell it a bit better with um, an MRI scan because it has these characteristic features. Um, but, uh, you know, the things that the patient would present with are things like an unsteady gait, some cognition problems so like you know simple forgetting and these very much overlap with sort of just what people call normal aging whatever that is um and so it's gonna be really difficult to diagnose um and and also if you think about gait and cognition you probably think about parkinson's quite quickly just because that's had a lot more awareness around it um so yeah. yeah people get you know so people don't really understand but or people it's undiagnosed it's under recognized i suppose and then also underdiagnosed, um and so we're you know we're sort of getting a little bit more understanding of it now um you know thanks to some big researchers have you know taken the time on it but yeah yeah that's so important because if you want to treat these things you have to be able to diagnose them first so you know it's that thing of how can we even begin to treat something that we don't we can't diagnose so yeah I think you've you're right in that it's so important to be able to do that um Josie what about you would you like to talk a bit about sort of the diseases that you're researching and have researched in the past yeah of course so um I'm right now I'm probably sort of in between Gaia and Sophie in that we look at stroke and small vessel disease um so I won't focus too much on that obviously there are two different types of stroke, um, hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. So there's slightly different um, things that go wrong in the vasculature to cause a stroke. Um, hemorrhagic being a leak, ischemic being a blockage of some form of clot. Um, so I think that's quite important to convey to the public. Um, but also there are, aside from stroke and small vessel disease, previously worked in traumatic uh, brain injury um, at the Glasgow um, TBI archive. So obviously there's um, brain injuries such as falls, road traffic accidents, 
um, assaults. Um, but then there's also sport-related injury, which is um, always in the news in the media, uh, scent retention. Um, so I think it's very important to think of our brain health in the sense of TBI as well. Absolutely. I think I have quite an interesting take on it in that I look at um, diabetes and obesity, which have classically been thought as as very sort of uh, rest of body <laughs> illnesses. It, you know, if you talk to the public, they maybe know about the pancreas. They definitely know uh, usually that in type 2 diabetes, you have to control your blood sugar. Um, but I think it's it's taken a while for people to actually start to recognise that um, that sort of uncontrolled glucose levels in your blood um, also affects your brain because as we've been talking about, your vessels um, aren't just in your body, they're actually all the way everywhere um, and all up into your brain as well. And um, I guess I sit in the field almost before all of you where I'm kind of looking about at your life choices that you make sort of earlier on in your life and how that might set you up to go on and develop some of these diseases. Um, so actually we've got a nice little, nice little cohort here. Hmm, collaborations, I think. <laughs> Josie. I'd just like to ask you a question, Fiona, if oh, we're no. to ask you questions. <laughs> I thought I was sharing. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this might be a this might need edited out later, but you know how your blood vessels in your periphery accumulate fat and become stiffened and hardened and things like that. Do, does the same happen to your brain vasculature with like in relation to diabetes yeah 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 everyone's nodding as well so i'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that's that just me. <laughs> no 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 but that's the thing like um unless you sort of touched on that metabolic mm, disorder thing that. um you should it's it's a fun field um we'll collaborate darling we'll collaborate <laughs> um but yeah yeah absolutely and and that that but you know you're you're in science and even you know within science it's taken quite a long time for us to appreciate that you know obesity and type 2 diabetes it isn't just about you know putting on weight and um your pancreas having trouble and your heart having trouble it's and your blood glucose levels going up and your insulin not being as effective. I mean, all of that impacts your brain as well as the rest of your body. Um, I think it's because your brain is contained in your skull and, you know, that's where all our inputs are, like your vision's up here. And I think you forget, you know, your brain your brain is an organ. It just, it's your control center. So, you know, if there's, if there's stuff going wrong in the rest of your body, the likeliness that your control center is having problems as well is really, really likely um and that's why i find it really exciting about the blood brain barrier and type 2 diabetes and obesity because um what we're finding is that those conditions those illnesses um which are driven by lifestyle um choices throughout your life are having a massive impact on your blood vessels the blood brain barrier um and actually what i think is a really hopeful message is that if we can start um explaining more about how if you make healthier choices that you can protect your brain um then what we might see is that people make healthier choices not just for their whole bodies but their brains as well and it means that we might be able to reduce how much how many people are going on to develop dementia related illnesses later in life um and and that's really powerful, right? Because that's something that we can all control. We can control our diets. We can control how much exercise we're doing. Um, whereas once you sort of get further down the line into these illnesses, there's limited therapeutics. Um, a lot of them have no cures. And that can make people feel quite hopeless and out of 
you know things are out of their control whereas if we you know we can control these things earlier in our life and we should mm. that should be empowering for people i think um so yeah no yeah just because i was just thinking like again I, I know nothing about the periphery shamefully i'm very much of above the neck researcher but also thinking about you know something like surprise surprise i also have a background in small vessel disease and um, we do know even in human post-mortem brains that the vessels do become thicker and they're a lot stiffer but then in my first postdoc that i did i worked on a monogenic form of small vessel disease so it was a collagen form mutation which is a protein that lines the basement membrane so again going back to the actual core vasculature and i found that there's actually thinning of the basement membrane so even though they might be similar in terms of you know the small vessel disease one might be sporadic or one might be monogenic but they're still quite different in terms of how the vessels change and i think that's quite important in terms of thinking about mechanisms and you know what might be different why is one thicker and one is smaller what's happening to the endothelial what's happening to the smooth muscle cells and how all the neuroglial vascular cells might influence which way it goes depending on you know sporadic or monogenic forms of small vessel disease and that is what you should set your lab up to do <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 well give it a go any funders out there <laughs> um, <laughs> so as we've been talking um, we've been talking a lot about how there are quite a mix of things that can go wrong with the brain vasculature um, so what are can we let's try and pinpoint now what are the challenges of distinguishing between these different illnesses um that are linked to poor vascular health and you know what can we do in the scientific community to try and unpick those um i guess i was just going to speculate i mean i i don't know if that i have a, any sort of conclusions but i was just going to speculate that i think that one of the big challenges you have as a as a brain researcher is the skull, right? <laughs> um, and the sort of impenetrability and the ability to, um, you know, you can't take a sample or, a, you know, or do a scan even. Well, they have these incredible, here in Edinburgh, there's great um, MRI uh, groups that do really beautiful work. Um, and only kind of through this work do we have a better understanding of this sort of thing. But, you know, you're limited with what you can do to research a living brain, really. And yeah, I think that makes it quite challenging. So we have to use other creative ways, perhaps studying the cells um, in a dish or using perhaps the animals that can represent um, the diseases that we're interested in. But I, you know, I often think that is one of the challenges broadly as a brain researcher, um, but yeah. Definitely. I also think it's a challenge as a, sort of in drug development as well right is being able to get your drugs into this highly protected area and it's interesting talking to some people who are in um sort of industry and they say well is a leaky blood brain barrier really a bad thing because then we can get our drugs mm. in but i think there's only now again this sort of developing this sort of understanding of actually what might be really good is if we just keep the blood brain barrier not leaky and functioning that kind of means that maybe you don't need any drugs to treat anyway because there's nothing 
going wrong or not as many things going wrong um, uh, since the blood-brain barrier becoming leaky is such a sign of problems. I was going to say it was really interesting what you were saying before, Josie, about your work that looks at the extracellular vesicles as a sort of, um, you know, a non, um, non-invasive way, I suppose, to, uh, I mean, I suppose it is still invading the brain, but in a non-invasive way, crossing the blood-brain barrier using that. I think that's a really incredible idea, um, kind of using the endothelial cells um sort of intrinsic properties to you know manipulating them in a way that we can maybe use it as a treatment that's a really cool idea yeah it's we're really excited by it i have to admit and one of the things we would in theory have down the line is that you'd technically be able to take some of the patient's own blood spin it down just so that you've got the plasma isolate the EV so you're then giving the patient back their own extracellular vesicles you've just loaded them with the drug this is obviously quite far away from my work right now but that's sort of the the long-term goal but long-term goals are where it needs to be right if you want that to happen you've (laughs) you've got to have that in mind I think that's so cool so in that way is the reason behind doing that so that there is less of a reaction by the body and to sort of reject the yeah exactly and so there's been a lot of work in extracellular vesicles recently and they are a key modulator in cell to cell communication um, they are released in health and disease um, and they do go from sort of one cell to another but it's, it's just we're trying to figure out how you could maybe target it a bit better because extracellular vesicles kind of do their own thing we're not really sure exactly where they come from although we're isolating them from plasma in a stroke patient, they might be extracellular vesicles from the brain. It might be a waste product from the brain that's been kicked out and we're taking it and loading it. So, so things like that, we'd have to Are extracellular vesicles on the night out uh, in our nightclub that we built, <laughs> are they your friend that goes absolutely rogue and you just, they're just going everywhere and you're like, come back? <laughs> <laughs> they could be that. We'll see... I like to think of them as like the person that leads you astray. <laughs> <laughs> they're not just going off on their own. They're taking they're you just with them. them. They're bringing you there. So. <laughs> so, so back to the science side of things. Can you basically put anything in an extracellular vesicle? Like, is it like a Trojan horse? You can just put anything in there, sneak yeah, it in. Yeah. So in theory, what what we do is we um, electroporate electrocellular vesicles. So oh, basically, that's a tongue twister. isn't it? <laughs> So we're giving them a, a little electric shock, which opens up their membranes so that we can put messages inside. So right now we're using microRNAs, um, but in my project that I'll be starting on Friday, um, we'll be delivering a peptide. Um, so the idea is is that it could be used as a vehicle. Um, the other sort of good thing about extracellular vesicles is that you could use them as a biomarker. So in theory, somebody's presenting um stroke-like symptoms in A&E. Um, right now, you know, it's it's so challenging to try and diagnose stroke on arrival um, to hospital. So in theory, what we could do is take a blood sample from the patient and we could run it through. And if they have these particular markers, we would know that they've had a hemorrhagic stroke or they're a stroke mimic or they're, you know, that's the idea, the big the big picture. That's cool. So um, I, have two, I have two questions. One, um what cells what are the primary cells that release extracellular vesicles in sort of just a normal functioning brain i'll let you answer one first actually yeah yeah. (laughs) i was at question two um so it was interesting to say that so we recently put together a review 
Um, and what was interesting was when I tried to find a nice summary of all the cells that release extracellular vesicles, it was really difficult to find a nice distinct summary because they're quite new and exciting and people are into their own sort of field. Nobody's really summarised extracellular vesicles in total. But when you look at the cells specifically in the brain, it is pretty much every single cell type in the brain. If, if you Google, like, McFrad brain, uh, oligial dendrocytes brain, you know, it's an EVs, it's, it, they're they release them. Um, the problem is, is that technically we wouldn't be able to isolate them from the human brain, a bit like what Sophie's saying, it's protected by the skull, um, which is why we're looking at the circulating extra the vesicles rather than the brain um, releasing vesicles. Um, so yeah, that's what we're, we're doing, which is quite cool. My second question is really common in that, so we're talking about how extracellular vesicles are in the blood maybe that is a way how we can sort of start to pick apart these different illnesses that are linked to poor vascular health and so we've so maybe yeah they're a great marker for um stroke and i don't know is there much uh, research done on if they're released um within with people who have other brain illnesses and diseases like alzheimer's or parkinson's or does anyone know yeah that's a great point um so what we've been allowed to do with one of the funds that um, that I've been granted is through the NHS Endowment Fund, and we're looking at mic- microRNAs that are it carried in extracellular vesicles or EVs, um, and their relation to vascular cognitive impairment, small vessel disease, um, frontal temporal dementia, dementia, and stroke. So basically, I've got a panel of forty-eight microRNAs that have been derived from EVs. And we're looking at 400 patients um, and the EV expression after stroke and without stroke um, across all these patients. So the data has been produced. <laughs> the data will be analysed. Considering I started your job on Friday, tomorrow's going to be really busy. <laughs> you can analyse that. Good all luck. that data in one day tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to finish here and then I'm just going to batter on with data, guys. Yeah, no sleep for Josie. No sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's really exciting i mean yeah sounds sounds mm-hmm. like a possible i think what we'll probably have to think of in the future is not just sort of one diagnostic like other illnesses have or um but i think for the brain we need that sort of multi-approach so maybe we'll have another blood biomarker alongside extracellular vesicles alongside brain scans um and maybe together you'll have this panel of um diagnoses that you go through and that you'll be able to say right this is um likely what you've got or this is what you've got that'd be great if you could definitely say it was that and then you would get your treatment plan to to help you um battle that that illness or that disease or even better let's say it cure it (laughs) that would be because that's what we're all aiming for we're aiming to cure these diseases um so yeah i think yeah that's at least even though it feels like it's been a battle to get here with diagnosis for different brain illnesses, I think it's definitely positive. And I think as long as the funding keeps coming, we can, you know, definitely get there as scientists. Um, so I'll... I think that's the... Oops, sorry, Fiona, I'd say that's probably the key bit is the funding keeps coming. I think vascular research has been underfunded just generally. Yeah. And hopefully we'll see a bit of a, of a boost... I completely Because also agree. thinking back, yeah, even, you know, not just to keep banging on about stroke, but 
we tend to maybe think about stroke as like, you know, for example, if the blood brain barrier opens or if monocytes are infiltrating, it's either good or bad, but there's actually more evidence to show that it's a lot more subtle than obviously just saying like, oh, we'll just prevent all the monocytes to come in. It actually makes things worse. So I think, you know, it's important to not think about it maybe just in black and white and to try and get all the subtleties, which is obviously the really hard thing, Yeah. <laughs> which is why we need more money. Yeah, so, I think funding, um, yeah. I think Alzheimer's Research UK has been aware that this is a growing area. And actually, recently speaking um, to the British Heart Foundation, they definitely are starting to recognise that um, vascular brain health needs more support. There's a lot of work that can be done there. Um, so I think it's definitely moving towards um, sort of getting more funding, which is really exciting and needed and I think we can do a lot of great work there <laughs> um Josie I keep forgetting the point that I was going to make and it's come back now um so just when you're thinking about funding and challenges I think one of the biggest things is for women in research here is um is diseases vascular diseases especially in women um I think often we're you know we're using animal models most most animal models are male um then most drugs that go to the clinic have been based on these animal models, which are male, um, and it's not necessarily treating the same conditions that are uh, presented in women. Um, so we have to be really careful with, for instance, with our study, extracellular vesicles can just be different depending on sex. Um, it can also be affected by age and smoking and everything like that. So there's lots of different factors we have to take in mind. Um, but I do think funding-wise, um, we do need to think about targeting these kinds of um, pathologies and diseases from a male and female approach if possible. I think that there is a lesson to be learned from heart attacks where heart attacks present differently in um, men and women uh, and for a long time because a lot of the research was based on men there's a lot of women would go to emergency rooms and be presenting um, not typically thought of as heart attack symptoms and be sent away or not be treated um correctly uh, but again that is changing and i think you know if if you think about it if the vessels in the if your heart and your is you know it's sort of what we think of as vasculature isn't it um if that presents differently then the chance of the brain vascular presenting differently is probably quite likely as well gaia mm -hmm. yeah no i was just gonna say it is changing so i don't know if any of you saw the MRC brought out a call specifically saying that they now kind of expect you to do multi-sex studies, which is really good because I think the, the stickler for me has always been, you know, you should do it, but you're so restricted on time and money, you know, and the fact that there's only really short postdocs or you know, there's only maybe one person working on it. It's just so difficult to get everything done and properly power it as well. Because, you know, if you try and do it, but you don't do it well, then it's worse than not doing it. So it's nice to see that reflected in funders because that will encourage people to do it and recognize it as being something that we do really need to do. It is interesting. So I feel it's very much though it has to be recognized, not just by saying it out loud, but it has to be recognized in action as well. So if anyone from the MRC is listening, we love this. We think it's great that you think that male and female um, mice or should or human tissue needs to be looked at, but you've got to fund it because it's going to cost you more. So you've got to fund it as well. Um, and 
yeah time as well it's it's just got to be appreciated that it's it's going to take more money more time but it, I think it's worth doing I mean we've just talked about it I did a so I do a little bit of peripheral vascular investigation shall we say um so I do a technique called laser doppler imaging in the periphery um and I do that in mouse models so it, you basically it gives you a scan and you can use some maths to work out the blood flow rate um, and just doing controls um, in male and female mice so just normal c57 mice and um, the blood flow rate of the female mice is just slightly higher um, and this is unpublished <laughs> so I'm just um, talking off the cuff here a little bit but even though that was a very small study and it's just one thing that I've taken away from it it kind of shows right there maybe is something different happening here whether it matters or not in the diseases that we look at we don't know um and estrogen uh, which you know women have which men don't have in the same way um could be playing a factor too so i guess it does become more complicated in men in that we need to look at um aging and sort of hormone levels as as a sort of whole not just isolated um, factors yeah I, I i mean i think in the idea of uh, you know differentiating and seg uh, segregating the data uh, you know you know presenting it as male and female as well as um together i think is really important when you're going um you know when you're looking at an animal study or you know even um human tissue as you say i think it's really important because they can present so differently like i think for example it's been known for quite a long time that microglia the um the tidier uppers of the brain um the uh, ones that are carrying your shoes your shoes home from the nightclub <laughs> exactly they're, you know they're going around they're, they're but they're in everyone's business you know they're clearing this up they're tidying that they've got you know touching this touching that whatever but i think it's known for a while that they they do behave differently in males and females um you know they 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 are different uh, <laughs> um maybe yeah one I, I can't i'm not i can't think of what exact features they are but i think they you know they behave differently um and so if you are only going to study one of the sexes in uh, of animals you know you're going to miss something you're going to miss something and like you say and then you take that information and then you carry it forward to a drug trial and interestingly often drug trials are only males as well um you know a, a human drug trial i mean would often be um, you know, just have a, man, a male cohort because, you know, they don't have those crazy hormones. Um, <laughs> um, so typically you might get your stage one safety trial just using men, um, which then you're going to translate. And as you say, these vascular diseases are more common in, well, as common in women, if not more common. And then, you know, you roll it out to a bigger group of people, of males and females, um, and surprise, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think the idea of starting early with that will be really beneficial in the long run. So it might require more investment early on, perhaps, but you could try and say, well, it means you're not going to drop it at the later stage because, you know, you've covered all of your bases early on. So it just makes more sense, right? <laughs> so I have a question, and this is something I've been thinking about in terms of models and picking males and females is if you're looking at diseases of the brain which are typically um occur in people who are older therefore in women would happen postmenopausal is it better to use a female mouse who is 
maybe pre-menopausal, but obviously matches gender? Or is it better to use a male mouse, which maybe has estrogen levels that are potentially closer and other hormone levels that are potentially closer to a post-menopausal woman? Has anyone ever thought about that? Yeah, I think that goes back to how important aging studies are. Um, and you can't really get away with that. So all of these diseases that we've been talking to happen to, you know, individuals that are a fair bit older than the equivalent of what we tend to study preclinically. And it has many, many challenges, probably more than, you know, saying, or oh, will include young female and male, you know, participants or even mice, but it definitely has to be done. So I actually went to a really good conference a couple of weeks ago, and there's a group in America, which I immediately forgot the name of the PI, unfortunately. It's no, normally my thing. Um, that they have spent years and years optimizing aging models of stroke to the, you know, to the level where they were basically saying that they require so much care. So these were like 21 to 20 months old. So, you know, if you think about a mouse lifespan, it's about 24 months. These are very, very aged. Um, and it came to the point where they basically have to wash them because they get infections so prone because they don't groom themselves as well. So, you know, that's something, again, if we think about how many people phys- physically work on a project or how much money is needed, um, it's just the scale just becomes so much more than, you know, anything that i've ever seen in the uk for example yeah so um, i guess we maybe have to yeah. think about do we do more studies in humans um and how do we you know encourage that so that you know we are sort of modeling it better do we yeah we need more money probably better way to recruit people as well i think that's one thing people really struggle with is recruitment um and i think the covid19 vaccine is a great example of how actually good almost marketing of studies and also support and funding, <laughs> UK government, <laughs> um, good funding <laughs> can really accelerate these areas of research um, by getting, you know, more people in so we can study these diseases in people before they develop the, de- the disease and then follow them through and see how their health um, develops as they get older as well. Yeah, I, but I think we, we, we will always need something to study in the lab. I think, you know, um, the, the work that we can do in, in human um, studies is brilliant. And definitely we could consider expanding that out um, and thinking carefully about how we could use the technologies we have in that. Um, but yeah, I think we will always need to be able to test it in something, you know, less... Um, something something on a smaller scale so something that can link all of these different elements together but something's on a smaller scale before you start putting it into a human yeah definitely i think um i think as scientists in the field we know that every sort of model has um a pro and a con so cells are really super important it's so important to have cell models um and i think the ipsc area is really interesting because we're getting closer to what um human cells would and should look like in a dish um and then obviously human studies that's where we're all aiming for but we do need that transition and uh, we do need something that's the go-between of whole organism study um and i think uh 
we could do a whole extra podcast on <laughs> on models um models used in neuroscience and in dementia uh, research Gaia on you go no I was just saying I think it goes back to you know what Sophie touched right at the beginning that SPD is so heterogeneous that it's always very difficult to come up with a good model I mean I know that's true for any model we have obviously in mice it's not the real thing and we're modeling aspects of it but I think especially for SVD it's particularly tricky because we still haven't really nailed down you know aspects that are like okay these are key features and you know one way is to go to monogenic but then again it's only a very small percentage of what we see in the population so you know you still want to be modeling sporadic which again as the name suggests is very different in every person which makes it our job a lot more tricky but keeps us in a job at the same time so hey <laughs> if you look at the alzheimer's field there's over 150 models and the way that i manage it in my brain so that my brain can deal with it all is is that it you really have to pin down your question and be like right what question am, am i trying to answer here what are the variables that affect that question and then look for a model that has those variables yeah I think that that's, or that you can add into a model I think that's exactly right and just what you said there Gaia which was about different aspects so like what is your question what aspects are being modeled and I think that when you're thinking about um you know these complicated diseases Alzheimer's small vessel disease uh, stroke you know you know you're never going to perfectly recreate what you find in the human condition you know you're always going to have to I guess compromise on something <laughs> um, and so you know it, it comes to you know understanding the aspects that the model offers and you know really understanding what the question is that you're asking um, because you know unfortunately some animal research is necessary in the way that we have it at the moment um, and so I, yeah I think that we have to start you know you have to start with um, with those things understanding the models and um, yeah, for example, the model that I um, have kind of characterized throughout my PhD looks at small vessel disease, um, but it's about looking at it without hypertension. So, yeah, we've always thought that hypertension is super important in small vessel disease, and of course it is. But what does that disease look like without hypertension? So, yeah, picking those aspects moving forward with your question, I guess, is one of the big challenges for um, starting any research. But yeah, particularly with something complicated like vascular health <laughs> so moving on I think for a long time um, society as I mentioned before has been very aware of how our lifestyle choices affect our bodies but we think less about how these choices affect our brains so for anyone listening what can we do to keep our brain vasculature healthy I think we've touched on it already Fiona you mentioned diet of course that's super important exercise um, again good for the heart and also very good for the brain and i think what's come up recently as well is um that i found really interesting and it's something that i've never really thought of is contact sport so how that affects your brain health and also impacts your vasculature so if we're thinking about like you know rugby even football which is obviously a lot less you'd say impact compared to rugby but you know just head in the ball does make a very huge damage <laughs> to the brain and the thing i really liked is that because then that research was funded we understood what happened 
and this actually shaped you know and changed some of the rules within both of those sports um which ultimately you know benefits public health um which is really what we want to do um I think that's really interesting um, about the sport. I do think it's interesting because that research has had a lot of support actually from the officials in the game as well. But I guess what you've got to ask maybe is a bit of a controversial question is if it comes out, sort of as these studies build, if it comes out that these sports do actually cause a lot of damage to the brain and lead to dementia um, and later life illness, what then what do these professional bodies do about that do they you know because they've said I think football for example have said up to a certain age they shouldn't be doing heading the ball um but then does that mean when they become professional footballers do they then either not have the skill to head the ball or they don't know how to head it safely or um you know what do they really do do they take that aspect out of football completely would that ever happen or do you think the pushback of sort of, but that's the game and that's the culture of the game would be too much for them to make those big changes? Um, I suppose in any sport, I mean, you could argue, you know, just to be, you know, to again, be controversial. I suppose in any sport, you know, they're putting their bodies at risk in other ways, you know, um, you know, they're putting other parts in danger by um, doing these any athletics or any sport so you know is is it then just considered a potential risk of the of being a professional rugby player or something I mean I, I wouldn't agree with that myself but perhaps that would be something that would be um would be thought of so I think the person that we should ask on this is Josie because this used to be your area of research yeah uh, so that's right so my first postdoctoral role was as i mentioned at the glasgow tbi archive um and so tbi uh, just to be clear is sorry just to be clear uh, traumatic brain injury traumatic brain injury. um so worked at the tbi archive traumatic brain injury um up at the queen elizabeth hospital um and i am a horse rider um and i know that coming off a horse you will bang your head and i probably have got concussed more than all three of you put together <laughs> um Horse riding, you can wear a helmet, it won't protect you against concussion. And I know and knew what I was getting into and the benefits for me personally outweigh the risk. I am a much happier person when I go horse riding. Um, So my mental health is much better. My physical health is much better. Um, And I would personally say for me, I know that it is a risk, but I still take it. Like Sophie mentioned, you could still fall off and break your leg. Touch wood, hasn't happened yet. But, you know, like, it is a risk that we're all willing to take. And I think it's more difficult when it comes to parents and children because it's the parent making the decision for the child. A a parent knows if it gets on a bike, it might get knocked off. Um, You know, and I think as long as the parents are informed and we as scientists keep researching this area, um, and yes, you know, we can limit... Um, heading and tackling but I do think there is a part of it that we just have to accept that you will become injured in sport physically either your brain or a limb. Um, So I guess what we're saying as well is is it any different to anything else that might be a bad thing for your brain health so eating unhealthy you know we have to give those choices to individuals about whether they choose to eat lots of chocolate or high fat or high salt foods (laughs) um so 
it's I guess it's maybe this you're saying it's the same thing like we have to give people the choice of whether they want to play sports where they might get injuries whether it be to a limb or their brain um, and that's don't get me wrong living I, is I think yeah exactly and I think they're they're doing the right things you know through rugby we're doing if it and doubt sit it out you know there are things they're putting into place to avoid secondary brain injury which is a totally different thing um, so I, I totally agree with how that is, how is secondary brain different in that it if it could occur again it could be as bad as me as as death essentially right so there is uh obviously i have stepped away from tbi and uh, tbi research so i'm not the most up-to-date in my um knowledge but you're the most up-to-date here though up-to-date <laughs> here on this podcast right now um <laughs> So it's different in the way that it's a different pathology. It's it's you you have a single TBI, you you get assessed, you sit out. But if you're not getting assessed and you're getting straight back on and you're getting a second knock to the head, that can that could be fatal. That could be much much more severe than if you had just sit out, you were assessed, and then it was. The, the other thing is, is it comes down to there isn't a, a an outright test for concussion. You know, there isn't a blood test that you can do where you can get a biomarker measured in your bloodstream that says yes, this person is concussed. You cannot go back on that pitch. I do think risk is a huge thing, but exercise is such a such a big thing in brain health. So I I think it's it's about weighing it's a fine up. balance. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think what you've said there about sort of primary and secondary injury, that shows how it's so important to have that kind of moment where you stop <laughs> if you are injured. And yeah, I guess it comes back down to education and giving people the information so they can make their own choice and about their own lives. One more thing. So we were sorry, discussing about uh, lifestyle cho- choices. So Gaia mentioned diet and exercise. Um, two other things I thought of was rest. Um, I think rest is so important in brain health especially when you think of our current work-life balance after covid you know a lot of us are working at home a lot of us don't maybe have the best work-life balance that we maybe did before going in um so i think resting and and when we rest it is when our brain processes things stores things um and i think it's so important to try and have a bit of rest downtime i, I, I listened to a podcast Sorry, alternative podcasts available. Um, I listened to a podcast recently and it, it reckoned that an adult should be resting for 42% of the 24 hours. And so they get, and, it, and that is, but that's the limit. You can't see on the podcast, but all of our faces went, what? Exactly. <laughs> I don't think any of us are doing that. Is that, no. is that resting or sleeping? Both, including rest, sleep, um, doing exercise, something outside of like, it, uh, severe mental intense activity it's so I think Sophie's yeah Sophie you've kind of touched on this about sleep right yeah I was because I was thinking you were meaning sleep but which of course is really important that's for brain health that's really crucial I know that um you know there's a a completely different set of things that happen when you're sleeping in the brain um but yes a rest is also classed as just not work I suppose then yeah Okay. Just downtime. Downtime. Also, you know, either meditating, yoga, just reflecting and taking a pause. And I think especially as scientists, we're probably not very good at doing that. Yeah, Um, potentially. (laughs) I think sleep's interesting to touch on as well because there's a lot of studies showing that during sleep, there's sort of a big flush out of waste products out of your brain. Um, And there's some really interesting research around um, Alzheimer's and amyloid buildup and how actually sleep might be really important to prevent that by washing out 
anything that could build up in the brain. But this is interesting, so we need to rest and sleep. That's good to know. This I feel this justifies when I sit on the couch and like binge watch. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, totally. My brain needs for it. brain health. Yeah. It's for brain health. It's my it's brain, brain health. health. <laughs> That's yeah, why thanks. I say I watch Married at First Sight Australia. It's because I'm going to shut oh, down mode. Let, let's not start this. It's never going to end. <laughs> so we should be watching something very casual. We should be watching something very casual. We shouldn't be watching anything too straining. So just something very yeah. cool, very calm, you know, brings us joy. So I can rewatch my favorite movies over and over and over again. And it's for brain totally. health, right? Yeah, totally. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, another sort of lead on from that is talking about other things that are supposed to be good for your brain. And I guess, do any of you know if these other things are also good for your vasculature in particular? So, for example, um, reading. Is reading, like, because they'd say, you know, it's good to, like, people who read a lot and do puzzles, that's really good for preventing decline in cognition. But is there any evidence that this is linked to good brain vasculature as well? I would love to do that study. That's a brilliant study. <laughs> um, right, Sophie? We need to write a grant. Or, or just maybe just participate in it. That would also be fun. Or just participate. <laughs> um, but, I think that yeah. would be interesting to look at blood flow and see, is it... Because you would think that if you're doing something that does sort of stretch your brain, but in a sort of nice way, so not, not the stress that we're talking about, but yeah, puzzles or something. In my mind it would make sense that there was an increase of blood flow to areas of the brain that would be required for that. And that would maybe be a good thing because you're almost exercising your brain blood vessels. Yeah, I guess we don't know whether blood flow, increased blood flow is always necessarily a good thing. Um, because, it, you know, if you have, say, a weakened vessel, you could be putting, a, you know, undue stress on a vessel. Um, but maybe it strengthens them. I think it's possibly context dependent. But yeah, I, I don't know whether we know that blood flow is always a good thing but we do know that exercise which does increase blood flow um will you know exercise increasing blood flow we know that exercise is good it's good for brain health um i think i read somewhere that like the exercise you know with through antioxidants can actually help the cells of the vessels as well i think um which kind of makes sense so yeah maybe blood flow is always a good thing i'm not sure I think you're right. I think, yeah, to be continued. Do you know what? There's definitely a paper on this somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I do know that Like from my studies, uh, when we look at blood flow, it definitely is decreased in the models I look at, um, which are obesity and type 2 diabetes. It's Blood flow is decreased in the brain in those models. Um, so that's not a good thing. So, but, but I think when you have a big physical condition, like say if you've got quite severe type 2 diabetes, reading a book is probably not going to offset that. You definitely need, it's it's a combination. Again, we are talking about this before. It's a combination of physical health and mental health and they come together. And if you have both those things, then you're sort of doing the best you can for your brain. Yeah. Um, I guess we just so we yeah. have a lot to learn. <laughs> we do have a lot to learn. And hopefully learning also looks after our brains. So <laughs> it's very circular. <laughs> um, so one last question to end on. And we've kind of talked about it already. But I just love to know this. Um, so we've been talking, me and Sophie um, have kind of declared our love for endothelial cells. Um, so I guess this is, is kind of aimed at Gaia and Josie. But 
what is your favorite brain cell and why? <laughs> so we, so me and Sophie love endothelial cells because I love them because I think they're underrated. Um, I love how they shuttle things back and forward um, across the brain, into the brain, out of the brain. Um, that just feels like they're a very useful cell. And I love this idea that, that they're at the interface of everything. So they're facing the blood, dealing with what's in the blood, and then they're also talking to and looking after um, the rest of the brain cells. So that's why I love endothelial cells. Um, Sophie, why do you love endothelial cells? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I do love I do love endothelial cells. They're very good. I think for the same reasons that you said, you know, I think they, you know, they're just, they're overlooked, you know, they're just getting on with the job. You know, they're really, they're just getting on with everything that needs to do. Although, like I said, I do think that when something goes wrong with an endothelial cell, it goes really wrong. So I quite like that they're a little bit dramatic as well. That's quite fun. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I probably have a soft spot for a microglia. I just think they're a little bit wacky, you know, a microglia. They're just, they're, they're dashing around. They've got things to do. They're over here. They're over there. They're very mobile. I think that's a lot of fun. But yeah, my heart lies with the endothelial cell. Kind of literally, I suppose. Um, so maybe I was going to say your heart lies with the endothelial cell and your brain lies with the microglia? <laughs> maybe. You know, my my more whimsical side goes for a microglia because they just seem a little bit <laughs> wacky. Gaia, what is your favourite type of brain cell and why? Ooh, it's always been a tricky one for me. So I've started off very vascular. So I was always intrigued by like extracellular matrix, basement membrane, endothelial cells. Do love a good endothelial cell. Because I was always interested in how, oh yeah, how I found my, I found my tribe, how like the smallest change to something like blood flow can impact the brain so, so differently. Um, and that's kind of really what got me fascinated about neuroscience and forms a lot of my background training. But now I've recently joined a very microglia focused lab. So I'm really starting to appreciate these cells a lot more and especially you know, quote unquote, they've always been defined as the resident immune cell of the brain. But there's more and more research emerging that these cells actually do a lot more than just, you know, your cleanup. So they actually, there's a lot of work going on about how they actually control and help modulate the vasculature and neurovascular responses. So I think that's the real sweet spot for me. Vasculature and cell work together is what I aspire <laughs> in any cell that's what I want so I yeah I quite like understanding the whole so that's why I quite like the neurovascular system and understanding how you're going quite broad you're like you just as long as it's linked yeah. with vasculature it you love it yeah pretty much even astrocytes I'm like yeah love me a bit of astrocytes <laughs> I'm just very pan pan neurovascular <laughs> <laughs> Josie, what about uh, you? I have to say, this is the geekiest conversation that I've had. <laughs> What's your favorite brain So I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm more exciting with Gaia in that I'm more appreciative of all brain cells. But I'm going to go a bit rogue and say that my favorite particle is a brain-derived extracellular physical. <laughs> what? What else? Oh, what? <laughs> just coming at you. Uh, Do you know, I'd just like to say this out loud, but we are in a neuroscience podcast 
and nobody said neuron. Yeah. That's, yeah, neurons are overrated. Oh! Yeah, I agree. This is, we're, we're about to lose all our followers for the Dementia Researcher <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Oh. Neurons are beautiful to look at, though. They're very they are beautiful. They and are if you'd beautiful. said, if you'd said favorite brain region, I would have said the cerebellum because it looks so beautiful oh, when it's histologically yes. stained. Absolutely, it looks stunning. I know. Oh, but let's not go down yeah. that route too. The hippocampus is also favorite stain. <laughs> but again, I feel. I feel <laughs> Favourite brain region? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know how to fill this back now. Um, so, now that we know everyone's um, favourite brain cell, um, I could talk about brain vasculature health and the blood-brain barrier all day, um, but we must bring this Dementia Researcher podcast to a close. Um, so thank you so much to Gaia, Sophie and Josie for joining me today. We have profiles of all our guests on the website, which includes details of their Twitter accounts. So if you have any questions or you just want to reach out and say hello, then you can drop us a line. If you take away anything about looking after your brain vasculature from this episode, it should be that we need to eat well and exercise. Um, And also, as we learned today, rest, not just sleep, but actually just rest. Um, And these things are not just important for your body, but your brain too. If you'd like to know more, you should also check out the Food for Thought shows from Dr. Sam Moxon, all here in your favourite podcast app, YouTube, and of course on the Dementia Researcher website. Thank you for joining us today. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.